0: previously on Star Trek and the Jews.
1: Two podcasts I really love are a podcast called Judaism Unbound that looks at radical new ways of reimagining the Jewish world, and one called Greatest Gen that watches Star Trek and makes fart jokes. I think if we can try to synthesize those Somewhere a little in between, bit, we, yeah. we might have some success. That might be good. And now the continuation. Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh.
2: And I'm Chava.
1: And we're so glad to have you here. We got some new listeners this month, so I just want to say whether you're here from the J-Crew or listeners of Judaism Unbound or the Friends of DeSoto, we're super happy to have you here. Welcome.
2: Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews.
1: So this month we're doing something a little bit different. We watched, as our Hebrew school homework, the episode Darmok, and we've actually got two great guests who are each the co-host of one of two shows that I think kind of inspired this project, at least in part. So the first is Benjamin R. Harrison of the podcast The Greatest Generation, and the second is Dan Liebenson of Judaism Unbound. But first, Hava, how are
2: you? I'm writing my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's not great, but I'm hoping to have a draft in by early September. So that's exciting.
1: And apropos of that, I regret that you were not able to join us for these interviews. I think we would have had a lot of fun, but I think life got in the way this month.
2: Yeah, life's been a bit crazy this month. Um, So I did miss the interviews, sadly, but Hopefully next time I will be there.
1: We had a new Star Trek series air this month, Star Trek Lower Decks.
2: Yeah, that was so funny.
1: I think maybe today we'll stay out of spoiler territory and circle back at the end of the season.
2: Were there really like spoilers to make?
1: (laughs) Did you like it?
2: I did. I thought it was very cute. I think it's such a good idea. How about you? Did you like it?
1: Yeah, I was impressed. I mean, I don't think all the jokes totally landed with me, but I think like the dynamic of the characters is really good. And so there's lots of great potential there. And I also just think that it feels really lived in, like it feels like they've thought about what it really means to be a person in this Star Trek universe. uh, And I'm really impressed by that. yeah. And it also has the tone of, like, whoever wrote this show has been watching next-gen reruns for the last 25 years, and it really shows.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's true.
1: There was one thing I wanted to call attention to in it. Mm-hmm. It's a blink-and-you-miss-it moment. Right as the new Ensign, I think her name's Tendy, is getting off the shuttle Way in the distance in the uh, in the shuttle bay, you can see what looks like a turbaned Sikh Starfleet officer.
2: Oh, yeah, you posted on the Twitter about it.
1: And that was really cool. I think that if it was someone in a maybe like my brain would have exploded. But like, hey, here is a (laughs) Earth modern ethnocultural group that like blends religious identity with nationality, ethnicity, culture, and tradition. And oh, you exist in the 24th century and you have appropriate garments that you can wear in your Starfleet uniform. So yay, checking lots of boxes there. And I feel very confident when I get invites on the internet about whether or not there are kipa wearing Jews in Starfleet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so are you hopeful that they may make an appearance?
1: Oh, maybe. Yeah.
2: How many times have you watched it already?
1: I watched it three times.
2: Oh, whoa, one less than Adam guessed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Adam. Uh,
2: When we sat down to watch it, Adam was like, I bet you Josh has already watched this four times.
1: Well, I had to watch it like once at three in the morning when it came out. Obviously. And then I watched it with my wife like the next day at like a reasonable hour. (laughs) And then I think I watched it again yesterday.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The third one was just for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, really. Okay. And
2: then you'll have to watch it with your daughter.
1: (laughs) We actually have watched some animated Star Trek. I only let her have about 15 minutes of screen time a day because, like, she's a toddler and she shouldn't have that much screen time. But we watched the two animated short treks, Ephraim and Dot and the girl who... Is it Touched the Stars? It's the one with the young Michael, and, you know, she's a toddler, like, she's not really taking it in, but it was fun to be able to, like, actually share a piece of Star Trek with her in a way that she, I don't know, kind of engaged with.
2: Yeah, for sure. So cute.
1: She's a kid who's only seen four movies ever, and, like, wow. the same Raffi YouTube video, like, 50 times, so it's uh, <laughs> it's it's not a whole lot of competition there.
2: Good for you guys.
1: Hey, and if she keeps at it, she'll be a fourth-generation Star Trek fan.
2: Wow, that is big. Except that she'll also be embarrassed by her dad with the podcast Star Trek and the (laughs) Jews.
1: Oh, no. Sorry, kid. (laughs) So why don't we get into our Benjamin R. Harrison interview? Sounds good. So this one kind of starts in media res, but I'll just tell our listeners Ben hosts a really great podcast called The Greatest Generation. Uh, Their tagline is that it's a Star Trek podcast hosted by two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a podcast about Star Trek. Uh, they go episode by episode. They started with Next Gen and they're like pretty close to done Deep Space Nine. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of toilet humor. They don't take it too seriously. And I was really happy to be able to talk to him and grateful for his time. So, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, Rabbi Benjamin R. Harrison.
3: Delay that order, number one. Red Alert.
1: One of the things we're talking about in this episode is the ways that people create communities. Some modern communities fill a void that the decline of religious spaces have left. Uh-huh. A really amazing thing, I think, about Greatest Gen is that the fans of your show went out and created this incredible network of communities, places like Gym GYM, Shimoda, which is for fans of your <laughs> shows who work out, Pets of DeSoto, where they post their dogs, a book club, a dating forum, a network of teachers and librarians even. Like, I think there's a lot of people who listen to This American Life, but I don't think that many of them went out and decided to make Ira Glass-themed discussions
3: of board games or Harry Potter. <laughs> Yeah. I think part of that is just that Star Trek is a fandom already. And I think people have experience like forming subgroups within Star Trek. So we're sort of drafting on the success of the subject of our podcast more so than, you know, our podcast in and of itself being successful. Do you think there's a lesson for like other organizations looking to spark community
1: growth? It, it makes me think, you know, most like churches and synagogues, and it's not unique to the Jews, but a feature of us is that every synagogue's got its basketball league and the old ladies playing right. And
3: <laughs> You know, I grew up going to an Episcopal church with my mom, and I had not attended any uh, religious ceremonies for a long time before a few years ago when my wife and I started going to, you know, high holiday services and things uh, in New York. And I found that I really missed it. I missed like being in a room full of people singing the same song, stripping away all of the meaning of, of what was being said. Like that as an experience is something that I think is very powerful. I mean, I think that I experience that sometimes at concerts or you know, live comedy shows or live podcasts. And I hope that that's like something that people experience at our live podcasts, like that feeling of like community and Hey, like we're all here because we're, we're into this thing together. I think it's good, good for humans to do that. Whatever the subject matter is. You mentioned
1: the live shows, and in another interview that we're releasing with this episode, we're talking with someone about the episode Uh Darmok. A little while back, I brought my pal John to your Toronto live show, and we had a great time. Oh, cool. He's a Trekkie, but he'd never heard the podcast before. You know, he was like (laughs) laughing all the way through, but at the end of it asked me, like, why do they keep playing that ice cream Trek music? (laughs) Um, Which, of course, is a callback to an old bit that you and Adam did on the episode The Survivor, but... But now it's really taken on its own. It's Dharmak and Jalada Tanagra. It's got yeah. resonance to people who listen, but it's it's ice cream truck music to people who don't. So how do you and Adam balance rewarding those listeners and and putting up barriers? And I wonder if that's anything you've experienced coming into Jewish spaces with your partner.
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think about that sometimes. And and when we have a live show, one of my favorite things to do is poll the audience and see who's never heard a Greatest Gen episode before. And inevitably, a handful of people, this is their first experience of Greatest Gen. That's always interesting to me. Like, what are these people going to make of this? Because at this point, the show is just an Ouroboros of inside jokes the holiday services that we have attended have spanned quite a range in terms of how they self conceive and so when we were in new york we would often go to a secular humanist congregation but my you know my my in-laws you know run the gamut there's more conservative people in their family and more reformed people in their family and everything in between so i've kind of i've been to like weddings where there were parts where I had to go away from my wife for a long time because the men and the women were separated. And I've been to all kinds of services. The closer you get to orthodoxy, the harder it is for me to like find things to relate to just because, you know, often it'll be in a language I don't speak. You know, like the best experiences I've had have been explicitly inviting people in and that, you know, I've seen a lot of diversity in the in the attendees and i think that's really cool and i get a lot out of it so i i think um you know with our show uh to pivot away from religion and back to a star trek podcast with lots of fart jokes in it we like returning to jokes just because we find that they can really build on themselves and you know if something makes us laugh once like finding another way to introduce the idea later has a high likelihood of making us laugh again and the kevin uxbridge uh ice cream truck music one is like is an all-timer for us and at this point like in a live show there's no way to explain what that is to somebody who's never heard it before so i think it's a bit like reading a torah portion in hebrew like if you didn't go to hebrew school I, i'm sorry you're just not going to be able to parse <laughs> <laughs> the language. Right. And it almost builds like a commentary around itself. It's not
1: just a reference to a piece of the show. It's it's an oral tradition that grows around with it over time.
3: Yeah. You know, there's almost like a Talmud of that stuff in uh on this website that our fans have made called um, I I think it's called Wikia. They've set up a whole wiki of inside jokes and explaining like oh this is the episode that it started here's kind of like the genesis of it (laughs) here are the like things you need to know to understand it (laughs) and occasionally i go look at that and i'm just like i'm boggled because like most of the stuff on there i don't even remember anymore (laughs) and like it's it's weird at a certain point to have put hundreds and hundreds of hours of stuff out into the universe because you can't possibly hold it all in your head and the way people connect to it is, uh, is always like super interesting and, and fun. Yeah. That's an interesting metaphor with the Talmud too, because like
1: there's this split between oral tradition and redaction. And of course, you know, anytime you, you translate a piece or write down a piece, you put your own spin on it. You know, if somebody is coming to your show for the first time, they might get their impressions from the wiki, which is its own interpretation of you. And, uh, Kind of building more <laughs> right, layers yeah. onto
3: it. No, that's true. I was I was looking at a page the other day that was like an old joke that we like basically have stopped bringing up on the show because of like hearing from people that they didn't appreciate the the premise of the joke. That's something that you learn in comedy is that like something you think is funny might be painful for somebody else and we've tried to like learn from that and make the show better and more inclusive and you know more fun for everyone over time with imperfect results but I think we get better every day. I was reading the entry about like an old joke like that. It isn't really part of the show anymore and I really disagreed with just how it was characterized by, you know, and I don't know who wrote the description of it. I may never know. It's that thing of once you put a creative work out into the world, it's up for everyone's interpretation and you can't like talk anyone out of their subjective experience of it. So that's like a a very weird thing to experience. It does sort of remind me of like the way, like religious sects break off, right? Like the, (laughs) we think this means this, not that, becomes its own subgroup within a religion. It's a schism and a word that if it was on your show would uh, demand
1: a drop (laughs) of its own. Right, right. It reminds me of, you know, something Chava and I struggle with, and we come from very different places. Chava grew up in a Montreal, modern Orthodox community, uh, and moved away from that in early adulthood. And I grew up very secular and sort of like engaged this stuff on my own as I grew up, but we kind of moved in opposite directions and ended up in a very similar place. Uh-huh. Something we struggle with a lot on the show is like how to engage with parts of the Jewish tradition that feel really important to us and are like part of our tradition, but don't square at all with our modern values. Right. You know, you guys have reviewed a lot of clunkers over the years, episodes of Star Trek, <laughs> even beloved ones that have like shocking amounts of racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. So like, how do you deal with that? Especially when you're, you know, you want to call stuff out, but
3: you're also trying to entertain and be funny. I, I actually made a flow chart a few days ago because I was having a conversation with with somebody about how the show works so the kevin uxbridge character is an example of this like the thing that we find funny about kevin uxbridge is that he committed a genocide and the show introduced this character that did that and then kind of uh, absolved the characters of doing anything about that because he was too powerful and then the series forgot he existed right? (laughs) (laughs) and he has never been mentioned again in Star Trek, so the flowchart is basically like: Was a scene written or performed in a way that seems weird? If yes, make jokes about that and take it to its most insane uh, logical extension, and then move on to the next scene. And. <laughs> And Kevin comes back on our show over and over again, because we can always find things in Star Trek to relate that to. And that's kind of like the core problem with any old TV show is that it was it's a product of its time. You can't expect somebody that was writing for television in 1988 to have exactly the same values as somebody in 2020 also applies to bronze age religions right yeah exactly and so one thing i've really enjoyed about my experiences with the like secular humanist jewish communities that i've participated with in new york and los angeles is that they are very up for kind of reconsidering things and giving context to things so if you go to a cold nidre ceremony at this community that we go to in la like they're talking about what the different elements of the ceremony are and like giving context like what it meant to people in the past what we can reuse it for now, like how how we can adapt these traditions to to the world that we live in and uh, our own understanding of our own spirituality and our own political engagement and, you know, all of those things. Wow.
1: Looking back through all of Star Trek, I think a, a really recurring theme is like that one person on the bridge who comes from the outside perspective. Uh-huh. And through that outside perspective, they glean things that others don't. And it's it's Spock, it's Worf, it's Seven of Nine, Odo, Saru. So coming with your partner into Jewish spaces is that something that uh, that resonates with you?
3: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've definitely like been in a situation where I put my foot in my mouth because I was new to it and just kind of gaining an understanding of it. I have friends that have gone through converting. That wasn't really something that I was ever, you know, my wife didn't ask me to and we didn't really give it much consideration in our relationship. And so like, I think that the downside of that is that I'm occasionally at a Seder and I call it a, I call it Shabbos accidentally or something like that. You know, I just need to learn the terms and I'm coming in from an outsider perspective in that way i feel like that's something i wish they would do a little bit more in modern star trek like if saru because because like one thing I i love about old star trek is the wide-eyed childlike wonder of a character like data explain to me what dancing is or something like that yeah like what is a joke what is small talk i like to ask questions and learn more and I think Saru is a great character, but I, I do wish he was a little bit less world-weary and jaded, <laughs> you know. A little bit more of an algae collector sometimes. Yeah, Data is, I think, a lieutenant commander at the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's strange credulity that he would be asking for somebody to define joke to him. A- after 25 years in the service or whatever it took. Uh, <laughs> I was just rewatching. Part of an episode called the Royale where they find a working 1970s style Earth casino on some planet somewhere. And like, you know, the corpse of a of an American astronaut with a novel in its pocket in the hotel attached to the casino And it becomes clear that this was, like, some alien race's attempt to provide an acceptable existence to this astronaut that they found and couldn't figure out how to get back to Earth. And they, like, made this simulated casino experience for them. But, like, Data is walking around and he's, like, he, like, asks somebody what game they're playing. And they say, it's Blackjack. And he does that thing where he, like, turns away for a second and says, accessing. (laughs) And then he defines Blackjack to them. (laughs) And they're like, Yeah. Like we said, blackjack. I guess sometimes when I'm entering a Jewish space and I don't know what's going on, I wish I had... A data-like ability to look it up in my brain computer, <laughs> right? And when it's Nidre, you can't even pull out Wikipedia quickly, right? Absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, so sadly, there is not a single named, like canonical character in Trek who's uh, a member of the tribe, unless we count, you know, there's like historical figures like Albert Einstein on the on the holodeck with Data or that one weird original series episode where a guy claimed to be king solomon but uh, it, it, uh, if, if we go like <laughs> like jewish coding alone uh, is there one particular character that strikes you as the most jewish in star trek
3: oh boy i think the gene roddenberry era of star trek was interested in kind of erasing religion from Humanity and Judaism being both an ethnicity and a religion and a culture kind of got steamrolled by a kind of Western conception of a religion as being a thing that you choose at some point. And doesn't have any bearing on any other element of your life. TOS and TNG probably are laboring under that a little bit more. But I think that they've been doing a few interesting things pertaining to religion in the new shows. Captain Pike knows a lot about religion mm-hmm. in Star Trek Discovery Season 2. And, you know, they find that planet where they've cobbled together a best guess at what their religion can be based on old religious texts that they managed to save from Earth I don't know. I think that maybe some of the Bajoran characters on Deep Space Nine might be interesting to consider in that way. Like they're in a post-war situation where essentially an outside force was in the process of wiping them out or using them as slave labor. And I think that it gets compared to wars aside from World War II, but it definitely feels a little bit like a post-Holocaust demilitarization of Europe kind of thing so maybe for that reason major kira would be my uh my nominee for character who kind of feels like maybe she was a she was like a a resistance fighter hanging out in the woods somewhere you know going into town and bombing a nazi base (laughs) i think is gonna like that answer a lot she's
1: uh, working through deep space nine for her first time oh wow she's really
3: come around on major kira i don't think it's possible to watch deep space nine and not fall in love with that character. She's just like such a great character and so brilliantly portrayed by Nana Visitor.
1: Ben, before we go, maybe you can uh, tell our listeners a little bit about
3: uh, your three shows. Sure. I have two Star Trek podcasts, if you can believe it. Greatest Generation is the one that we started first that began as a a rewatch of Star Trek The Next Generation. Kind of as we came to the end of The Next Generation, we started to find out that there was going to be new Star Trek series. So what we did was we went to one episode a week of that. And started to watch Deep Space Nine. And then we started a new podcast called The Greatest Discovery, which originally was for watching Discovery episodes. And now we've watched Star Trek Picard and we've reviewed a lot of comic books in the Star Trek universe and old TOS episodes sneak onto there from time to time. When we're in the off season, it's a little bit more of a sandbox where we kind of goof around. And then our third show that we do with our friend John Roderick is called Friendly Fire, and we review old war movies. We watch new movies and old movies, and we try to look at them through a lot of different lenses. If you make a World War II movie in the 70s, it often is as much about Vietnam as it is about World War II. If you make a World War II movie in Japan, it's going to have a really different feeling about what that war means than if you make one in the United States. So we look at the kind of historical and cultural elements. And then, you know, Adam and I, my co-host on Greatest Gen, were both filmmakers or lapsed filmmakers in our previous careers. We like to talk about production and storytelling stuff as well. Friendly Fire is a weird podcast that is hard to describe. A lot of people like don't expect to like it as much as they do if they give it a try. Yeah, it's been my uh, lockdown
1: binge and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, nice. That's really nice to hear. Ben, thank you so much for uh, joining us at Star Trek and the Jews. It's really been a great pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having
3: me.
2: Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews.
1: Oh my god, I was so nervous about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to them for so long. It's funny because like listening to a podcast feels very intimate because like they're in your ears and in your kitchen and your bathroom and your bedroom and like it sounds like they're right there with you. But like, no, normally as a listener, you are not engaged with them. So I was a little bit starstruck, if I can be honest. And yeah. um I'm really grateful that uh, that he was able to come on the show.
2: That's so fun. I'm glad.
1: Can I say something, too, about it?
2: Yeah, go on.
1: I just want to give a little shout out to supportive spouses. There's so much negativity in our community directed towards couples where one spouse is Jewish and the other isn't. Oh, yeah? And I think it's really, really toxic. Looking at how these kinds of families have been treated by our communal institutions, it's no wonder that so many of them just, like, opt out of Jewish life and, like, I don't blame people who do that. But I just want to, like, give a shout out to all the non-Jewish folks who support and affirm the Jewish rituals, traditions, and practices of their spouses. Also, non-Jews who are raising Jewish children. Like, it takes so much out of people and I just want to express some gratitude for that.
2: Yeah, that's really nice. It's true. So, Josh, Mm -hmm. are we going to talk about Darmok a little bit? Yeah. Like just us?
1: What do you think of Darmok?
2: Darmok is, I think, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. It's just so good. Everything about it is really great. I I just really love it. I think it's it's just such a good story.
1: Yeah, it works on every level for me. It's a character piece, yet it's also fast-paced and exciting. And it's about exploring strange new worlds. But really, that is a way of understanding, like humans and humanity and ourselves and holding up a mirror to like, how we think about the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's about peace and conflict and pacifism and survival and making new friends. Yeah, this this episode is wonderful. Yeah, it's
2: really good. I think that's the first time I've been on Star Trek and the Jews. And I was just like, hands down, this is an amazing episode. I'm sorry, Josh.
1: (laughs) I have not one single negative thing to say about it.
2: No, I can't think of a single one.
1: The performances, the look of it.
2: And like, it even has some space stuff. Like, it's not just a character piece.
1: (laughs) This is an episode that I will show to people who've never seen Star Trek before of like, this is why you should watch Star Trek.
2: (laughs) You're setting a high bar to those people do you then send them into the original series
1: well when i was first uh, watching next gen with my wife we like jumped around of like a top 10 or so just to get her hooked and i guess it's not really like a serialized show so i picked ones that don't really rely on the last episode yeah i think this got her hooked hey should we go to the mailbox
2: the mailbox Yeah, yeah. let's go to the mailbox. So we got some mail from Rabbi Jen Gorman, who was on our episode Jews in Space.
1: Episode five.
2: She was uh, addressing a question that we had in our last episode about autopsies and whether or not they're allowed in Judaism, because we were really unsure. And so she wrote in autopsies are not allowed in Judaism, except when they are. So typically Jewish. Unnecessary cutting into the body is forbidden. One time they're allowed as if there is a legal need, i.e. a homicide investigation. In those cases, the autopsy should only be done to provide the necessary information. The idea is a minimum of invasiveness. Another reason for an autopsy is to save a life. When Sean was a rabbi on Long Island, Sean is uh, Rabbi Jen Gorman's husband, a congregant aged 41 died suddenly from unknown causes at home. He and his daughters shared liver disease. A minimal autopsy was performed on him to determine if the disease was the cause of death, and if that had implications for her. She was on her third liver when her father died. If the disease was to blame, knowledge of that could have saved his daughter's life. It wasn't the disease, but the only way to know that was via autopsy. I know both rabbis and doctors who have attended autopsies to ensure only was necessary is what is done.
1: Huh. Now we know.
2: Yeah, now we know. Thank you, Rabbi Jen Gorman.
1: So listeners, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got a question or a comment, or you want to answer a question that we didn't know the answer to or got wrong, or if you just want to like fetch about canon, uh, send (laughs) us an email or even better, like a voice memo from your phone to Jews at gmail.com and maybe we'll use it on the show.
2: Yeah, or you could also tweet us. Tweet us at Starjuice. Should we go to your next interview?
1: Yeah, let's go to double reb alert. What? Besides I have an idea that may prove Shh.
3: Listen, do you hear it? Evacuate all personnel in this water. Double red alert.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Dan Liebenson. Dan is the founder and president of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future, a hub for ideas, education, and action dedicated to accelerating bold innovation in Jewish life. He's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Judaism Unbound. It's a project to reimagine and redesign Jewish life in America for the 21st century. Dan, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews.
0: Thank you. It's so great to be here. I've been listening since, I think, literally day one, because you sent me an email and told me about it.
1: (laughs) Your show got me into a space of, like, I want to take into my hands working on a Jewish project, and the best way to do it is just start, and so I was... Really excited to tell you and Lex about it.
0: I think yours might be the first podcast that claimed actual lineage from our podcast. And I'm excited to finally be here because I think I said on that first email that I have something to say about Dharma.
1: Maybe we can talk about that. So uh, my first question for you is, uh, Tama, his arms open wide. And if any members of the Kahila want an Aliyah on the Bima, email the Gabai before Yontef. Exactly. How do Jewish communities use insider language the kind of language we see in Darmok. And what do you think are the impacts of that?
0: Yeah, I think that's really the point that hit me when I first saw Darmok. I think I experienced it on an intuitive level. And then as I've been going on, I just keep coming back to it, this sense that so many Jews feel this sense of alienation when they encounter a Jewish institution or some longstanding Jewish community. It just strikes me that there's this sense that Judaism and, and probably every other sphere of life, but operate with this set of references, these stories that are just constantly referred to in ways that people don't even recognize and that are kind of subtle. And I, I was thinking about this the other day, that there are even ways that people think that they're translating, but their translation is just as opaque as the actual word. So I was thinking about tefillin which are those little boxes that you tie on your head and your arm when praying in traditional Judaism, they're often translated as phylacteries, which is a word that means nothing. It is a word that only means the standard English translation of tefillin. Judaism's great power and any longstanding cultural traditions, great power is in part its shorthand and its ability to refer to these stories that everybody kind of knows, but that only works as long as everybody knows them. And as soon as everybody doesn't know them, then they actually become extremely dysfunctional unless your goal is to keep people out, which has been the goal in Judaism in in various times. But in a time like ours, when we talk the talk of wanting to make it accessible to everybody, then I think we actually need to keep aware of the extent to which those stories are actually alienating.
1: I was thinking at risk of getting a little too meta of some of the ways we've promoted our own show, Star Trek and the Jews. And uh, in many of the descriptions of the show, I think on our Twitter and a few other places, we'd say that new episodes come out every Rosh Chodesh, mm. which is the beginning of the Hebrew month. We're a monthly podcast. What what kind of signal do you think like we may be sending out inadvertently by using that language?
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think when if you say it, then either it's inadvertent or you're directing that to a particular group who does know what that means. And that's the challenge. So for example, we put out Judaism Unbound on Friday mornings, and in our minds, it's very much so that people who either they already have some kind of practice of Shabbat, the Jewish day of rest, that they can have this podcast as part of that practice. But people who don't already have a practice for Shabbat, well, maybe they don't even really recognize that it's coming out on Friday intentionally. And that's OK. We don't we don't market it that way. And and so I think that if you're marketing it that way, then, you know, it's it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, it gives you the opportunity to give a really fun wink to the people who are in the know, but it also potentially is an avenue for alienation. And and that's something that we struggle with a lot. I'm always sitting there when we're having a conversation with somebody and I'm wondering at which point should I jump in and interrupt the flow of their talking in order to translate some word or some concept that they've just assumed is in common knowledge. And, And usually I don't jump in to interrupt somebody else. But it's often the case that I myself will be translating on the fly. I'm thinking in terms of how is the person who doesn't know very much, how is that person hearing what I'm saying? And and so I'm constantly doing a, a bit of a parallel translation.
1: So I think I've said on the show before that in my true heart, I feel like a reformed Jew in that post-Halachic and a full embracing of Enlightenment values. But I've always belonged to a conservative synagogue, and I feel very, very comfortable in my conservative synagogue because it has the liturgy, ritual, and tradition that feels familiar to me. And I think a lot of that familiarity comes with some of those insider phrases that might be hard to decipher. It's the melodies that I know to be familiar. It's the use of Hebrew, a language that I can't speak conversationally, but that I can follow on a liturgical level. So if we're talking about making adaptations to be more open, how do we preserve things for people like me who are drawn to the past like that?
0: It's not necessarily clear that you can or you should. It's a question of what are the implications one way or the other. So if we think about the children of Tama, for example, and Dharmak, it's like we're not saying that they should change their culture in order to make it more accessible to the people from the Federation. The point is whether we can translate their culture sufficiently. And I think that the challenge that a lot of Jewish communities fall into is that they're not sure how... Open, They're actually trying to be to others. There's nothing wrong, actually, with saying, hey, we're going to create a small community. And it's really for a relatively small group of folks who really want something a certain way. There's no shame in that. I would say that Star Trek is a good example of, of something like that. It's not that everybody in the world needs to love Star Trek. The point is that there's some number of people who really love Star Trek, and it's perfectly fine for them to create a community for themselves that is impenetrable to other people. The question that comes up is when you decide that that's not actually what we want it to be about, that we believe that this is something of universal value, then I think that translation is going to become naturally something that you have to do. We you think about Islam, for example, as a universal religion, they understand that people are going to practice Islam in many different languages. And maybe there are certain things that you have to do in Arabic, but there's no sense that everybody's going to speak Arabic fluently in order to be a good Muslim. Certainly Christianity doesn't see it that way in terms of Latin or Greek. But there's some sense in Judaism that this kind of insider language, and in particular Hebrew, is a constitutive part of it. And it may or may not be. But I think we have to be open to the possibility that there's a way of having a really valuable Judaism that is very different, that is not necessarily in Hebrew as much, that doesn't necessarily have those, quote, traditional melodies, which in many cases aren't actually very traditional. A lot of the melodies that we think of as the standard melodies of conservative synagogues are actually German drinking songs. Mm. So it becomes a question of, well, what point in time are we anchoring our attachment to tradition to? At the end of the day, if I'm preventing somebody from connecting to Judaism because I'm overly attached to a particular German drinking song to which a certain Jewish prayer was put, that doesn't feel to me like it's an important enough value to have that consequence.
1: Over the weekend, I was flipping through it's a collection of short stories called Wandering Stars, Jewish science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading one called I'm Looking for Kadak," which was by Harlan Ellison, who, of course, wrote City on the Edge of Forever, uh, it's Star Trek, the original series. You know, it was a really nice story, but probably written in the 70s or so. And it felt very foreign to me. It was kind of stuck in this mid-century New York idea of what it was to be a Jew. And I'm not so far far removed from that either in time or space, but it really didn't resonate with me. And, you know, I thought about what are the constants, what are the Tamarian metaphors in Judaism that can stay consistent? There's things at the center of our tradition, like Torah and Talmud, that draw a line all the way through, but those might be a lot less familiar than the kind of Jewish culture of the moment that people live in. So how do we balance that?
0: I was thinking about what makes the culture of the Tamarians really powerful in Dharmak. And I think it has something to do with that in just basically a personal name and a place name and maybe a little bit more, they're able to signify an entire course of action. And everybody understands what that's saying to us. And I actually think when we talk about a lot of the Jewish reference that we have, they're actually not that important. Like you say, I mean, they have to do with something much more contemporary or something that people have a sentimental attachment to, like a song, a tune, but they're actually not that important. Whereas the things that really are important are often things that people don't really know, that a lot of people don't really know. I'm talking about stories from the Torah, for example, and that the people who do know them, have often been taught to see them through all these lenses where they actually lose some of their powerful meaning. So to give you an example, when I teach leadership skills, often I will use a set of stories that come from the Torah, a lot of them in this particular part of the Book of Numbers, where there are a number of stories of essentially leadership failures. For example, when the spies are sent in to scout out the land, or when the people are thirsty and Moses is told by God to speak to this rock and the water will come out and instead Moses hits the rock. There's all kinds of stories like this that are actually extremely short, like good poetry is. And they really are kind of like Darmak and Jalad at Tanagra. Like you could say, you know, Moses and Aaron and the rock at Kardesh, you know, and you could say, well, that's the story of the hitting the rock. If you actually study that story deeply, you actually can see that there's deep and important leadership messages in, in there. So for example, when in the Hebrew, God says, speak to this rock and water will flow out. God then says, and you shall water the people, right? The, the language is like watering your animals or watering your lawn. It's kind of an act of taking care, an act of love. And instead, when Moses hits the rock, he says to the people, come get your water. So it's actually a total inversion of God's advice, which is, I know you're angry. I know the people are complaining again, but you as the leader should understand that the people are the people. That's how they are. It's your job as the leader to care for them anyway. Think about how a parent needs to sometimes care for a child, even though the child is driving them crazy. And you should act toward them with love. And instead, the real sin, I think, of that story, the real error of that story, is that Moses, instead of acting with love, responds with anger. So to me, that story is a story about responding with love and not with anger when your buttons are being pushed. So if somebody knows that story the way I know that story, if my kids were pushing my wife's buttons and making her angry, I could say to her, Moses and Aaron at Kadesh, And she would immediately kind of have this sense like, oh, yes, I should I should be more loving to the kids and I should sort of take a breath. Nobody reads the story that way, right? Nobody is really deeply enmeshed in these stories. The more observant people tend to have learned stories like this through a very particular lens of trying to figure out what Jewish law comes out of it or what God was really trying to say. And non-observant Jews tend to not really know these stories very well at all, except as like a little casual kind of uh, side comment. And so I think something really deep is being lost by our not having access to those stories the way that the Tamarians do. But I think that the reason why we don't have access to the stories in that way is partly because somehow they were seen as alienating. It was seen as too much of an insider's game. And eventually those stories became so alienating to people that they stopped studying them altogether. So I'm not sure exactly what the right solution is. I think stories like that is what gives Judaism its potential great power of wisdom, but it's also what makes it potentially most alienating.
1: One of the tricky things too when we talk about the symbolism and the meaning of those metaphors is that even within the Jewish tradition, the understanding of them seems to have changed. Like I think of the story of the golden calf, for example, like we, we see it as a polemic on idolatry, but I think maybe even the classical rabbis miss that in the Canaanite pantheon, El is a is a giant, powerful bull god, and all these pitiful Israelites can muster with all their gold together is like a little measly calf. Mm. Or um, we talked about in our Picard episode, Mordecai and Esther having these Persian assimilated names right. that seem lost on the early rabbis, but probably were very intentional by the authors of that text.
0: I suppose that's good, right? I mean, I suppose it's a good thing for meaning to change over time. I think, obviously, Darmok is itself a metaphor. I mean, it's itself a a short version of a bigger idea. In a sense, you know, one could look at the children of Tama because they are so cut off from other societies. There's also no pressure on their stories to change. Sometimes, you know, in science fiction, there are stories that get told, like uh, John Scalzi has a set of stories that tell his old man's war stories through the, the perspective of a different character than the one that told the original one. And it would be interesting to think about Dharmak as uh, told from the perspective of the first officer on the Tamarian ship mm. and what, what happens when he goes back to his society and what happens when they actually build relations with the Federation. And, and maybe it's that it's not only that their stories get translated so that the Federation people can understand them, but maybe they also start to change their own culture because they encounter situations that they hadn't encountered before. And there's great loss in that. We had somebody on Judaism Unbound, uh, novelist, Ruby Namdar, and he really talked about the destruction of the temple and the loss of the sacrificial rite as being something really major that was lost, something that we should still mourn, even though we say, oh, we wouldn't want to be killing animals and sacrificing animals. But he said there's something really big that was lost in no longer having this Judaism that you could feel and that you could smell and that you could really have a sense that something was happening. And, you know, in his words, it got replaced by the others have said this, you know, in in his words, he said, it was just replaced with words, 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 you know, just a Judaism of words. And nobody should say that that's not a major loss. We can also lament that people don't have access to some of these Jewish stories, and I wish that they would have more access. And at the same time, I'm not sure that it's necessarily all bad that we've moved in a different direction. And and so, you know, I don't know exactly what to make of it, but I think like all good fiction, this episode helps us think about the question. In the
1: episode, Darmok, Deanna and Data when they discover the meaning of Darmok, they find that it's not from the Tamarian homeworld, but from the mythology of another planet in their sector. And I think that's very much true of Jews as well. I mean, Picard relates Gilgamesh to his, his companion, the Tamarian captain. And I think we lift a little bit from Gilgamesh, or maybe we and the authors of that text lift from a mutual source in places like the story of Noah. Right. What are things in today's world that you think should become part of the vocabulary Of Jewish metaphor, and what are things happening right now that are stories that should be passed along?
0: Hmm. So, something that I've been thinking about a lot with regard to COVID, I think the reason why a lot of relatively prosperous white people have been freaking out about COVID is because early on there was this idea that the hospitals were going to fill up and I might be sick with COVID and I might be able to be cured if only I could get on a respirator. But if the hospitals are full, then there aren't going to be any respirators for me. And I might die, even though I didn't have to die. And one of the things that struck me in those early days was that that is the experience of every person who doesn't have health insurance all the time. Mm -hmm. They could live, they could be more healthy, but for them, the hospital is full, or effectively full because they don't have health insurance. That was one of those moments that I felt like, wow, you know, if we could figure out a way to capture this in a Jewish value or a Jewish story or a Jewish statement that would be passed along through the generations, right? Where The the fundamental idea is that we should live as though we didn't know what kind of person we were going to be born to be and that in some fashion our choice to live that life will have an impact on what happens in the world because if everybody chose to live that way then we would probably build a better world and in fact i think that meaning could be attached to passover in an important way a lot of people i think think that it already is attached to passover right they think that there's some idea that you know if we remember that we were slaves in egypt our ancestors were slaves in egypt that we would live in a more generous way in the world. But I actually think that's not the original goal of Passover and of the Passover Seder. I think originally the message of Passover was something along the lines of, hey, uh, our ancestors were slaves in Egypt. If we can try to reenact that and feel like we ourselves were slaves in Egypt, then we should know, we should understand that the only reason why we got out of that situation was because God saved us and we should be grateful to God. And so now we should spend the rest of the year worshiping God and being more focused on our gratitude towards God. I think the idea that a freed slave would behave more kindly towards other people, towards enslaved peoples or towards oppressed peoples around the world, I think that's actually a more contemporary valence that people are putting on Passover. And I'm all for it. If we think about the Seder, as it does say in the Haggadah, that it's not only that we are remembering that our ancestors were slaves in Egypt. The main idea in the Mishnah is that in each and every generation, a person should believe that they themselves were slaves in Egypt. Something should happen at the Passover Seder or somewhere else on Passover that makes you feel like you actually were a slave, that that somehow would change you. And I think that the way we're experiencing this a little bit in these COVID times is that probably most of us are going to be okay. And so on the one hand, we're actually living this, but there's a way to think about what we're doing right now is like a really dramatic reenactment of a situation in which we are fleeing from some oppressor, or we're just on the precipice of perhaps dying. If we can somehow capture this and maybe attach it to Passover and maybe attach it to something else, I think that maybe we will have been able to make Judaism a little more dramatic and a little bit more powerful than I I think it has been for the last couple hundred years.
1: For the last few years, I've been lucky enough to attend. Friends of ours host it. They call it the Gayer Seder, and it's an LGBTQ liberation-themed Seder. It is like a really powerful metaphor for themes they want to get across in that Seder. The couple who runs it, they're very active in the Jewish community, but also a queer community, and it bridges those two together in a way that is really powerful. And one of the things I love about it is that so many people go to it who've never been to a Seder before, I think it was two years ago, someone Completely unironically and without knowing what they were saying, pointed to the Seder plate and said, What is the meaning of this bitter herb? <laughs> it's like, wow, this is actually what we are supposed to do here. It only was able to emerge in a way that was like natural and not rote because of the desire to like expand the Seder for this broader theme of freedom and liberation. Yeah. So after languishing for More than a decade, Star Trek is having a real moment right now. We've got two new shows on the air, and by the time this episode is out, it's going to be three. I feel really lucky. I feel like I'm living through an age of Star Trek that's had a transformation for a new generation, where the fan base feels younger and more energized than I can remember in a long time. But inevitably, that's brought kind of conflict between people who want to adapt for the future, and people who because of their love of what came before are sort of like rigidly doctrinally attached to the past. That's probably uh, not too dissimilar to some of the work that you do with Judaism Unbound and, and the Institute for the next Jewish future. So what are ways that you've come across that tension in the past? And how can we work to navigate it?
0: It's a great question, because from a Star Trek perspective, I feel like maybe I'm on the side of the lamenters. <laughs> this is not only about Star Trek, but it, it includes Star Trek to the extent that Star Trek takes on some of the more contemporary forms of visual storytelling. You know, As much as I try and I enjoy the current shows, but I don't exactly feel like they're Star Trek. When the stories are told in these much faster paced storytelling techniques, and there's a lot more fighting and a lot more special effects. But that's not really what I loved about Star Trek. You know, what I loved about Star Trek is a story like Darmok, which has almost nothing in terms of special effects that really matter. And it also isn't an extended story over a long period of time that I have to spend a lot of time holding in my head and trying to. All these pieces together. So then I kind of think, well, am I doing the same thing that people do about Judaism that I put myself against? And I think it's an important question. And I think it helps me actually think about what I'm trying to say vis a vis Judaism. I'm actually not questioning, at least what I understand to be, some of those deep original impulses. What I'm feeling is that the original impulses, the original wisdom, has actually drifted as is natural over the course of a long period of time to not be the center anymore of what the experience of Judaism is all about. What I'm trying to do and what I think a lot of the people that I most admire in the Jewish world today are trying to do is they're trying to go back and say, what are the deep principles of Judaism that either were always the deep principles of Judaism or probably more honestly, what are these deep principles of Judaism that I really connect to? There might've been other ones too, and I don't connect to those and I'm happy for those to be left behind, but I want to make sure that the really good stuff is being brought forward but it's going to have to look different. and So I don't actually feel like I'm changing Judaism so much as changing what I think of as the user interface and the kernel is still the same. And the user interface isn't actually that important. The only purpose of the user interface is to allow the user to use the thing that's under the user interface. That's the thing that I'm struggling about with regard to Star Trek is whether what we're seeing is really just a new user interface that makes Star Trek able to connect with people today in a new way, or whether we're seeing something that's just very different and that's maybe using some of the Star Trek symbolism and structures. I'm curious how you feel about that. I've been struggling a little bit with Discovery and Picard. I think
1: that Star Trek has always been in motion and that some of the frustrations that you're feeling might be the same kinds of frustrations that a a diehard fan of the original series watching that clunky first season of Next Gen with rampant sexism and baby-faced Riker (laughs) might have felt. I'm willing to give it some time to grow its legs. There are moments within it where it feels very true to the values and storytelling and world-building that I feel attached to. There's moments where I feel, like, I guess really let down just by the sloppiness of the story, like especially in the latter half of season two of Discovery. Really none of the seasons, looking at the two seasons of Discovery and Picard, they all kind of start strong and potter out near the end. But I think there's real opportunity there. I'm willing to give them time to be better. And I also think that what you feel as authentic Star Trek is really, really just driven by like what you came to be a fan of as a young person. And sometimes that has been played to the advantage of Star Trek. I think about, you know, The Wrath of Khan as such a beloved film, but the reason The Wrath of Khan really works is because it takes the change from the original series to the films and really twists that in a way that you don't expect. So whereas the original series, Kirk would just brashly move on to the next adventure, never remembering what happened last week. The ship's always back to normal, always the return to the status quo. And suddenly for the first time in Wrath of Khan, Kirk has to face death, the franchise has played on a genre twist from this kind of weekly horror action adventure to a more rooted realism to good effect. So I guess I'd say I'm happy to see what they keep throwing at me. We don't know what Lower Decks will bring us. I'm a big fan of the genre of adult cartoon comedies, sort of like a Rick and Morty style show. So I'm excited to see what they have for us.
0: Yeah. And the one thing that you said that I I think is really, really important, and it relates to a conversation that Lex and I have on an ongoing basis on Judaism Unbound is that a lot of us, when we look at something and say, you know, what was the old one that, you know, the good, the good old version, we're totally picking and choosing. You know, we're, we're totally focused on the things that we liked from the old system and not the things that we didn't like. Like, I remember once having a debate with a relative who was saying, I wasn't observing Shabbat in the proper way. And I said, well, but you don't observe Shabbat in the proper way either. And they said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you don't really observe the rule that you can't select the bad. You, you can't take out the the waste products from food and just keep the good stuff. The, the law is that you have to only pull the good stuff out of the old stuff. And he's like, "Well, oh, I never heard of that rule. You know, and I was like, well, whether you heard of it or not, it's an actual rule and you're not observing it. You have a selective notion of what Shabbat is, and I have a selective notion about what Shabbat is. And I like my version of Shabbat, and you like your version of Shabbat. You know, neither of us is actually seeing the whole, if either of us saw the whole thing and it was given to us as a kind of take it or leave it, we would probably both leave it. And so I think it's interesting to think about when people complain about change, whether that's changing Judaism or changing Star Trek. What are they using as that reference?
1: Yeah, and that selective memory is so at the core of everything that we think of as Judaism today. The whole basis of the Talmud comes out of the rabbis like reconstructing a golden age of the Second Temple that didn't really exist in the way that they imagine it. They construct it as part of this tapestry they weave together. I think it's true of any story that we keep telling ourselves over a long period of time is that you have to reinvent it to serve the purposes of the present.
0: Yeah, for sure you do. The question for me always is, and and Lex and I have debated this endlessly, is there any way for somebody to say, I think that you did it wrong? Or is the only test of that ultimately the test of time and the test of whether people find it valuable? And honestly, I'm not sure. Dan, it's been
1: so great to chat with you. Before I let you go, maybe you can uh, share with our listeners a little bit about exciting projects you have on the go. And for anyone who hasn't listened to Judaism Unbound before, one great episode you recommend people start with.
0: In terms of projects that are currently going on, when COVID started, we had this sense all of a sudden that there weren't going to be any Jewish events happening in person for a while. And so we launched a project called Jewish Live which you can go to at jewishlive.org. The way I think about it is kind of like an airport to this new Jewish digital wilderness that we're all in. And so if you don't know where to go to find interesting things going on, just go to Jewish Live and we'll get you to where you want to go. We've been producing a lot of our own shows but we've also been connecting to uh, all kinds of jewish digital experiences that other people have been creating and uh, you can sign up for an email list to find out about things and then we've got all kinds of related projects going on through that including something that we're going to launch right before rosh hashanah that is a exploration of the binding of isaac story so talking about particular stories that you can kind of refer to in a few words, and that have endless layers of meaning. So the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham is one of those. And we're going to have like 20 different people giving you 20 different perspectives on that story. And that's a proof of concept for a larger project. So we're excited to be launching that. Uh, If you want to listen to Judaism Unbound, I actually still think that episode three, which was our very first guest with Rabbi B'nai Lapi, who is the founder and uh, Rosh Yeshiva of a LGBTQ perspective yeshiva, Jewish learning project uh, called Savara. I think that was a a conversation that really set a lot of our perspective that we've been playing out for 200 some uh, odd more episodes. So That's a really interesting one. I'll say one more because I think it's interesting on this level. We spoke with a rabbi named Juan Mejia, who actually grew up Catholic in a family that, that he eventually discovered had Jewish roots. And then he ended up officially converting to Judaism and becoming a conservative rabbi and starting to teach classes on the internet in Spanish for other people who thought that they had Jewish ancestry. And over time, people started to find these things and come to him and say, well, I don't think I have any Jewish ancestry, but I've found these videos and I'm intrigued and I'd like to become Jewish. And at a certain point, he had to decide whether that was something that he wanted to to do, because that wasn't the original intent of his project. And in many ways, that captured something really deep for me about this whole world that we've been talking about, that you can't necessarily know what to do and what the right thing to do is. And the future takes you on an interesting junctures. So that's really what we've been exploring on Judaism Unbound from the beginning.
1: Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Star Trek and the Jews.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure.
1: Take care.
2: Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews. Hey, Josh. That was a great interview.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was a lot of fun.
2: Dan touched on something that I was thinking about when I watched Darmok. And it was just about how Jews have lots of stories and we could definitely have a language sort of like the Temerians. And so that really led me to my Afikomen, which was really just how Darmok to me really seemed like a mashal, which is another word for like a, a basic story that has a, like a hidden moral code meaning to it. Which is called the Nimshal. And this is like a common teaching practice in, I guess, Jewish school or just Jewish teaching in general, where there'll be these different stories that are very mundane, but teach you something about the moral path to Judaism. They're everywhere in the Bible and in the Talmud. And one that I think of is the story of the Tower of Babel, which Sort of connects to this just because it has something to do with language where you see that the people of earth are deciding that they're going to build a tower that's super tall and be able to reach the heavens. And God's like, that's not cool. You shouldn't do that. Like you can't come up to heaven. You're a human. And he makes it so that they can't understand each other. They're not able to continue their construction because they can't understand what their comrades are saying. So I just thought. That was what Darmok made me think of. I just, I kind of found it funny that it it really, it does make you think, like, your moral code of how we react to, like, the foreigner, and just having your eyes open on how to communicate and understand where someone else is coming from. So I just thought it was a very Jewish episode that way. It was really like a mashal with a (laughs) nimshal.
1: That's beautiful, Chava, thank you. Yeah. Soketh, his eyes uncovered...
2: Josh, what was your afikoman?
1: Okay, so mine's a little bit different. (laughs) There's no art to transposing music, right? Like if you need to change the key of a song, you just like you pull out your circle of fifths and you count some semitones and away you go. But translation is not like that. Translation is all about choices, and metaphor is where those choices become most dark. Especially when approaching an ancient text, every metaphor forces the translator to make a choice between literalism or uh, respecting the artistry. This month, we lost Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz a towering scholar and translator of Talmud and Torah. His translation of the Babylonian Talmud into modern Hebrew, as well as his many commentaries have made the text more accessible for study today than probably like any previous time in history. And students of Judaism all over the world owe a debt of gratitude to Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. So that's my afikoman for today, and uh, may his memory be a blessing.
2: That's so nice.
1: Chava, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode.
2: It was nice to be here with you, Josh.
1: Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Star Trek and the Jews, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to listen. That's the main way we find new listeners, so it helps us out a lot. Your Hebrew School homework for next month is the original series The Enemy Within, original series Mirror Mirror, next-gen data lore, and Star Trek discoveries. Despite Yourself. That's going to be our first Discovery episode. Woo! Thank you so much to our Rebel Alert guests, Benjamin R. Harrison of The Greatest Generation and Dan Liebenson of Judaism Unbound. The continuation music was Galactic Damages by Jingle Punks. Our opening fanfare was arranged by Renaissance Man and Category 5 Mensch Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end music is Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next month just before Rosh Hashanah.
2: Thanks for listening.
1: Who am I? Dada. And who's that? Mama. Can you say Worf. Yeah. Can you say data? Dada. Can you say Jean-Luc Picard?
0: Mm. Mm.